Okay. Um, got a few formal teachings and quotes. See what happens. And uh, I'm really happy to be here. How many folks are here for the first time? Anybody? Okay, great. And how many people are uh, new to insight meditation? Same, oh, a couple other people. All right, okay, great. How many people are really old hands? Not elderly necessarily in age, but you know, you've been at it a while. All right, okay, good. So tonight, does everybody know what the Four Noble Truths are? How many people have just even heard that, that kind of, as a teaching device? And how many people have not? Just so I get a sense. Okay. Okay, good. So what I hope to do this evening is, um, is just give some reflections on this very classical, as a matter of fact, as I start, you'll see it's the most classical, most basic kind of original teaching of the historical Buddha. And see if I can, if we can bring some life into it for, for relevancy for our own lives. And then I hope that we can have a lively discussion um, once I'm, I'm finished with my uh, remarks. And I want to say before that there's a lot of different ways of looking at these um, and there's very specific teachings. I'm going to emphasize certain things. And if you have Q&A and you want to draw out other features, please do. But I'm going to emphasize certain things that I think are, are, of, uh, are of value for the, for the quality of our living, all right, versus a, a kind of a pedagogical precision, okay? So, because that's what I find that, that why we're here, why this is a practice center, is that we're learning to use the tools of, of cultivating, recognizing present moment awareness and the supportive kind of wise intention around that to to really help the quality of our lives and hopefully those of others too. So that's the frame, okay? So if you take it in that way, uh, hopefully it'll be of some, some help. So uh, what are the Four Noble Truths? Noble, truths, those are pretty kind of big words, huh? So the Four Noble Truths are the first teaching that the Buddha gave supposedly after he was enlightened. It's called the teaching of the turning of the wheel of Dharma, which means nature, natural law, which means the teachings that move from suffering and certain, specifically certain kinds of suffering and freedom moves from one kind of pole, pole to another. Or as I said in the title, um, happiness, inner happiness, which is sometimes the same as outer happiness. They can go together, but they can be very different as well. So these are considered truths because there's, if we look into our subjective experience, and this is very important, each one of us, how we're meeting life versus some philosophical stance of how things are externally, if we look at it subjectively from our moment-by-moment experience, we may find that these principles that are laid out here actually have some some power to them. If we test them, we might find that, hmm, there's something in my own subjective experience that matches up with this kind of 
arc this or this teaching, and it starts with dukkha. Anybody know what dukkha is? Everybody knows what dukkha is. <laughs> so it's often translated as uh, as suffering or unquenchability of thirst or um, unsatisfactoriness. Um, what I like actually is the image of that's used often. Uh, that Duke actually, one of the images you break the word apart is a wheel out of kilter. So, and I think that this is actually, there's a bit of subtlety in this as well that I think will help us as we go along. Uh, that there's a wheel in our lives, or we're living a wheel, but there's something that's it's out of kilter, right? So it's rolling in a way that isn't quite as smooth as we might <laughs> want it to be. So there's a universal fact. Does everyone agree that we suffer? And let's just call out maybe. Tell me, tell me just let's, let's go around. Just, just name. It's not going to be a downer. Don't believe me. It's not just, this is not just a, a downer fest of all the bad things. <laughs> not at all, actually. It's a starting point of, of, clear, of actually a starting point of often acknowledging and seeing into things that we, we don't naturally want to. Okay, so what, what, just raise your hand if you have one form of suffering. Maybe you've had today. Anything. Anybody? Yeah. So you lost a person or a thing or just today you're feeling. So, yeah, so, so specific. Okay, good. Yeah, so let's, let's make it really, if we can, like today, have you felt su- what suffering? So you felt the feeling of loss. Please. Knee pain, good. No, it's not good, sorry, but... <laughs> right? That's, <laughs> that's a clear example. Thank you. <laughs> Please. Anxiety over calling right, your ex. Okay? Yeah, anxiety. That's not a pleasant feeling, is it? How'd you feel that? Can you, can you, I don't want you to tap into it too much, but did it feel bodily... In your body, in different ways? Yep. Neck and... Okay, thank you. Thank you. And you're smiling. So this could be a, this could be a, a portent of what, where, this, where this teaching can help us to actually not rejoice in suffering, but have a different relationship to it. So, anybody else? Yeah. Worrying. Yep, about your children. And the worry is different than taking care of them, right? Yeah, it's the mental, that mental worry. Okay, great. A couple more, anybody else? Yeah. Exhaustion. Yep. Mental, physical, both. All of the above. Well, I'm glad you're here. Did you fall asleep in the sitting? So you just slipped in for the Dharma talk. Okay, good. So that could be smart, actually. <laughs> okay, good. One more? Yeah. Self-doubt. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's not pleasant, is it? That's suffering, isn't it? Okay. Good. So some of the comments were uh, physical, right? Pain in the knee. Some were physical and mental, right? Exhaustion. It can be mental, physical. And some were just emotional. But there's going to be a thought association with emotions too, right? Worry is both an emotion and it has a thought pattern, right? Or self-doubt is the same thing. So those are kind of conflicted or unpleasant 
um, afflictive emotions, right? So these are all forms of suffering. So the Buddha taught that there are forms of suffering, and I'm, I'm using this uh, for the talk because I, li- I like this approach, okay? It's, 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 it's meant for practice, okay? Not just theory, but practice. So there are kinds of suffering that we have as humans that seem in a way to be unavoidable. Yeah, a pain in the knee is definitely, as long as you have a body, there's some kind of, as long as you have a body, you will suffer. Everyone agree? And you'll experience joy. So it's not just, suffering actually is, when it's framed, it comes with an ancient Chinese wisdom teaching, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So it's like in the bundle. It's like what you, you, you I was going to say sign up for, you didn't necessarily sign up for it. What the situation that we find ourselves in with these bodies, these minds, these hearts, right? So joy and sorrow, joy and suffering. So one level of suffering is, it's the body as it, and these are classical Buddhist teachings, as it ages, so a knee pain can be associated with aging, it could be an injury, right? The people, all, all the people that are aging in the room, which actually happens to be all of us, do we all feel that there's certain things that happen in the body that aren't pleasant, that feel like there's levels of, Suffering, both physical, and that, I mean, by this I just mean it's unpleasant, right? There's physical, that's one level of suffering, okay? So we have old age, we have sickness. How many people had the flu this winter? Or about, nobody? Don't don't worry, it's not the, (laughs) it's not the one worried about. (laughs) Um, How many people have have felt just some, some illness in the last year? Yeah, pretty universal, right? Half the hands go up. Good for you, the other people didn't raise your hands. Okay. Um, how many people have suffered when something deeply has ended? There's been a death of something that was either a person or a connection, right? Good. And it's also said in the fundamental level, that even birth, even the physical act of birth is very hard, has suffering in it, right? Why would a baby cry? You took me from a nice warm, my nice warm salty, salt, someone salty in there? I'm not sure. <laughs> my warm bath. <laughs> and you stuck me out here in the cold, bracing air. And for a little while, it's going to be that act itself, right? Crying, needing air. That's a big shift. I went away to the, to the uh, Caribbean this winter for, I haven't been for many years. And I came back and it was really cold. What happened? Suffering because of change, right? So... <laughs> So there's these levels of suffering. There's also levels of suffering which seem to just come with the human experience of, that, are, that are emotional in the way that had to do with loss. Lamentation, it's, it's, there's a whole list. Pain, lamentation, pain, uh, grief, despair, loss. How about this one, not getting what you want or getting stuck with what you don't want <laughs> uh, or vacillating between the two or changing your mind. I wanted that, now I have it, now I don't want it. <laughs> Right? So there's a lot of these energies that just seem to come with the human condition. But there's a second level, which, so I would just call this, and again, I'm using it because I I like this frame, just normal human suffering. Does it seem like all the things that we go through as normal human beings? And and I think it's important to honor this because it's a full human experience. Joy and sorrow, pain and loss, uniting, and beautiful love and expressions. 
that they're all wound in in the fullness of being human. Okay? So there's a level, there's another level of suffering which is often called uh, optional suffering. And that's where we can do, hopefully do some work through these teachings and through just how we're living our life. So what would this be? So there's a story that the Buddha gave of um, someone that was a battlefield. I don't know why, a lot of these old images are, they should politically correct, you know, they should like move them forward 2,600 years and make them a little more politically correct. But it's a very effective teaching, I think. It's called the teaching of the two darts or the two arrows. So there's a battlefield and there's two lines of forces and they're shooting arrows, et cetera, at each other. And one person gets hit by an arrow and he's kind of all alone and there's, a, there's knolls on either side of him and his, his, you know, his colleagues are, they're not colleagues if they're warriors. What are they? Hello, colleague? No. <laughs> so the, his brethren or sisters, whoever they are, are spread out. You can't see them, but he, they can call to each other. So he gets shot by an arrow. And what he needs to do immediately is to either, if he has the skill to take it out himself, or to call for help, or both. Right? And what does he do? None of the above. What he does is he has a mental reaction, a reactivity to the fact that he's been shot. And so then he goes through all these different permutations of mind states. I'm no good. Why didn't I have my shield up? Right? How, how could I? I, my, I hear other people talking. That means they weren't hit. I'm a bad soul. Right? I'll blame oneself. He's not doing anything about it. Also can blame the other person. How dare they? Or even in the story, it says that he was actually worried about who made the arrow and the types of feathers that were used. <laughs> I, so it's a mental preoccupation that's actually getting in the way of, getting in the way of dealing skillfully with the situation. Okay? So it's considered that he shot himself with a second arrow, his own inner mental reactivity. And then if we apply this to our own, so that's a physical, but if we apply this to our own situation, maybe we have an initial pain, we haven't been treated well, or we have a loss, then how much time do we spend actually trying to, to work with that, give it the space to let it heal, to let it do what it needs to do, in the same way that when we have a wound, what we want to do is... Give it, the right, right, give it the right conditions where it can heal. And there's a, natural, there's a natural tendency for the body to want to heal itself. Of course, you need support from the outside in a lot of situations. And often, we're just creating the conditions. So you know what a cat does? I have a cat. You know what they do when they get sick? They just go off and lie by themselves often. They don't drink, they don't eat for a while, and they really relax. This will come in later. They really just let their bodies do the healing. Yeah. Sometimes they need medicine, right? Of course. But that's their natural tendency is to just give space and not to create a reactive suffering, but to actually just... And the metaphor, of course, is instead of this reactive suffering that we have... How many people suffer from reactive suffering? If I asked, I could ask the same question I asked before about uh, today, suffering today. How many people, let's do it again. How many people have experienced, feel like they've been reactive in a way that was optional today? Now, everybody's hands goes up except for one or two people. <laughs> one, can I have one or two examples, if you don't mind being a tiny bit personal? You don't have to go into the whole story. Same, can anyone, just when it came up, what was an example 
today of a reactive. I mean, I'll tell okay, I'll give you an example, okay? So I was with friends, and um, they're elderly uh, earlier before I came here, and I was helping them out with a few things, but I was also tired. I wanted to have a little quiet time, right, before I come up and gave a talk. And then I kept getting asked to do more things. And really, I actually had to say I had to leave early. I was like, oh, I got to go now. At a certain point, I needed to leave. because, And I was thinking, wait, don't you know that I have to give a Dharma talk and I need, I'd like a little space? Uh, and my mind was like, it should be a certain way, shouldn't it? Right? Plus, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to be with my friends and help out, but also it, it didn't feel reasonable. It should be different. How many of your suffering and the reactive suffering was based on the fact that things should be or another person should be? Or we should be different than things are. That's a big one, isn't it? Right? So if we, if we get caught in that, that's called reactive suffering. There's, a, there's energy. It's very practical. There's energy that's trapped in the space between this is how it is, right? And this is how I want it to be. Or I don't want it to be. So what would happen if we didn't have that we have the same experience, first experience, okay? If we don't get caught in the thoughts and the reactive emotions that go with that, what would that... Have you ever had moments when you've done that? When someone's kind of... It's, it's the analogy is it's like biting the hook. Now there's all these things going by, our minds and our hearts, especially in relationship with our partners, with our work colleagues, with the world in so many ways where there's things that come in and we can, we can either react to it, it shouldn't be that way, and, and actually this isn't saying that we shouldn't change, it, it's not saying that there's not active change in the world because that's, that's very important. You see, th- see something. That's very different than the energy that's stuck, that's trapped in there, that actually is at secondary. We feel it as pain that's not doing any good. Now sometimes that pain can actually be a call for change, right? So it's not that all, all suffering in this way is, isn't, doesn't, it can give energy, but the second arrow is not, it's getting stuck, okay? That's what it is. We're shooting ourselves. We're not saying, I'm hurt. Ah, that's, I have an emotion with that. Now let's, what can I do? All right? Yeah, it's very different. So what's the, what would it be like if we didn't have that second arrow? If we didn't, so it's like these, these it's like a fish, right? There's all these, these there's, there's bait going by on hooks. Ah, isn't there so many stimulation that we get from advertising to people tweaking us to our own idealizations we're putting on things where we just go right into that, that, that reactive mental emotional suffering a lot. And the, 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 the sadness, the real sadness of the, of the analogy of the, of the darts, the arrows, is that we can do this for the rest of our lives. We could not just second arrow, third arrow. We can just keep doing this, can't we? Unless we know how to have the skill to be actually allowed to create the conditions where healing can take place if it needs to, and then just be able to, to, to not bite the hook, not to do that. Okay? And that's actually, what, that's actually what the teachings, these teachings progress into, how not to bite that, how not to, to, to indulge, to react to that second level. Well, first, if we want to find out what, how not to react, we have to understand what the cause is, don't we? One of the analogies for the Four Noble Truths, it's like a doctor who, once you recognize that they're suffering, and in this case, very practically, it's this, this not the level of being the 10,000 joys and sorrows, 
but this, this inner level of reactivity, reactive suffering, okay? That this specific level What is it based on? If you go to a doctor, you go to a doctor because you're sick, right? I mean, it's, did people come here because there's some, like you feel a little wheel out of kilter? Is that part of why, some reason why we come? You can actually come for two reasons. You can, it can be like suffering or it can be exploration, which is positive. And they both, you'll see in the Four Noble Truths, they, all, they both work together actually. So that second level You go to the doctor because you want to be, because you feel you have a problem, right? The doctor says, yep, you're suffering. Your knee hurts, right? There's some level of suffering, any kind of doctor. And then you try to find out, there's two things you need. One, you have to find out what the cause is, right? And you have to also have the hope or the potential or the doctor says you can get better. If that's not there, not so good, right? So this is not terminal, (laughs) What we're working with is not terminal in this sense. The third noble truth is that there's the possibility of freedom. So you go to a doctor because you want to get better and you know that health is a possibility, right? Or healing is a possibility. So then you look into the causes. Once you find out the causes, you know there's a possibility of healing, then you want to take steps to enact the healing, to create the greatest conditions, right? Okay, so that's the Four Noble Truths. The fourth is that. So what are the causes of this reactive suffering? Anybody have any ideas? Okay, thinking can be, well, maybe. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's, okay, so that's, so thinking can be part of it. It can be like a soup and a cock, right? A thought is, thinking can be part of, for what? Exactly. Right. So desire. And you could say, it's inter- this is a really interesting question, because how many people know kind of in the classic Buddhist teachings that the, so the first one is that there's dukkha or this suffering. The second one is that the cause is, the word often is translated as tanha, tanha, which means, in one level, it means desire. There's actually flavors of it. One is desire. One is aversion, which is desire. That's right. It's desire. You can desire to have something. You can desire to not have something, right? You can also have a, a kind of um, a, a leaning in mind that doesn't, or a mind that is clouded. It's called delusion, but it's clouded by its imposition of, and that's where thoughts come in, right? Our past conditioning comes in through, through thinking, but it's based on some energy of, not seeing things clearly. How can you see something clearly as it is if your mind is imposing on it and the thoughts that are getting involved with that and the emotions, the desire for, the desire against? Yeah? Tanha. It doesn't mean that desire is bad. Okay? There's another word, this is from the Pali, the early Buddhist uh, language called uh, chanda, which also means desire, but it means, it means the passion of learning, living and learning. We're here because we have Chanda in a certain way, right? Uh, not chanda. You don't have to, oh, I have chanda. No, not like that. You, you want to grow. You want to discover. You want to learn. Is that correct? How many, people, how many people just basically feel like you care about the quality of your living and you're willing to work with how you meet life to do that? 
Yeah, you have some desire. Yeah, that's good. It's a good, it's a good energy. But it is a hard energy, and it is a movement energy. Okay? So desire is not, it's not like, hey, I have no desire. Okay? There's actually two extremes that are found in, in the teachings, and one is the kind of this desire for permanency. You want to live forever or something? <laughs> and another one is the desire not to be. And we can feel those. They're kind of a pull. So this isn't, so this desire, right? This desire is so desire in the sense of pushing and pulling and not seeing clearly. Does that seem like that's an underpinning cause for, for our reactive suffering? We have to see, the thing is we have to see this in our own experience. Okay, so this, and that's what runs through the four of these. There's a progression and there's also an absolute immediacy of our awareness of meeting the moment as it is. Oh, this is suffering. Okay, and then the desire or the intention to understand it, to see it clearly. And often with our repetitive, because a lot of our suffering is conditioned, isn't it? Our conditioned mind and heart, our, our reactivity imposes itself and creates separation, creates non-acceptance. So I was talking with someone, with a friend um, today about uh, someone that, so it's a tiny bit personal, but uh, I got divorced a few years ago and now I'm dating a little bit, not much. But anyway, so, so I've been dating someone, like the second person in quite a long time. It's like, yay, okay, that's fun. And, but my mind comes up with all these excuses why it's not perfect. Why this person, like, it's great here and this, this, but then my mind, no, but I, I'm looking for that. And I'm like, God, my friend just said to me, you know what? Why don't you just let your, let, try letting her be just the way she is? It's like, what? <laughs> so think about how much suffering. And this is radical. It's not about, like, value judgments, but it, in terms of someone's behavior, but it's actually how much of our suffering comes because we're imposing we just can't let people be as they, and we can't let ourselves be as we are. How much suffering comes there? So we have to investigate, okay? So when I heard that, I was like, yeah, I'm working with that. I use my mindfulness. And then, as you'll see in the fourth noble truth, you actually start to work with the reactive suffering because you have the skill to do it. We don't have a lot of skill, do we now? Maybe you do. <laughs> How many people feel, feel like they actually ha- can distinguish between normal human suffering and reactive suffering? Does that distinction make a big difference? Just knowing, oh, this is my inner reactivity. And this is what actually, my knee hurts, or I, I have a loss and I'm feeling that pain, or anxiety of an anticipation of a loaded situation. These are natural human emotions, Right? But we can, get, we can spiral when there's not a sense of what? A relationship to them that's based on clear seeing, right? Oh, this is suffering. Oh, wow, feel the mind. It's just caught in this conditioned pattern, emotion, thought. I'm spinning in here. I'm getting caught. Seeing that. Seeing itself is what starts to unpack the stuckness, right? It starts to change the relationship. And that's the fourth. That's what the fourth noble truth. The third is that there's the possibility. There's a possibility of being free, at least in moments, of this reactive suffering. 
Have you had moments when you were triggered but you weren't triggered? Or you had a deep emotional... So, so these are natural. These aren't... That's what I'm saying. These are they're called noble truths, but they're actually another way to look at them as, as um, kind of skillful strategies just, or to wait, ways to look into reality to see if they help you to live because they're not overlays. It's just this is... It's like looking into natural... Oh, I'm clinging here. I'm pushing. I'm pulling. I'm not... I don't have this capacity to see clearly. What's happening then? There's all this reactivity. And it feeds itself. But I have moments when I don't do that. When the same input, the same emotion washes through and it's full. I'm not denying it. It washes through. And other times it gets caught up with thoughts and it gets an unpleasant or pleasant experience which keeps fantasies going or keeps vendettas going in our minds. Or right. Sometimes we just get caught up and there's no freedom. And then eventually it will end anyways. You notice? Or at least there'll be, a, there'll be a change. And that's the universal law that helps us we can, when we can align our, our vision with that to actually see that if we don't add and try to create solidity, there's a natural process when awareness is present that helps to unpack experience, that helps to, it's called emptying the heart and the mind because we're not clinging. It's a, it's, this is called the path of purification. We're actually purifying. We're letting things wash through. It's quite literal. We're letting things flow. Okay? So how do we do that? So that's the fourth noble truth, which is called the Eightfold Path. And very simply, it starts, and this is, and this is where our first piece of real power comes. It starts with uh, having a view of reality that is fresh and isn't just tied in with our habit conditioning energy. So the view is to understand freedom, reactive inner suffering, to understand, to learn to know the mechanisms, and to be able to unpack and to touch that natural ability which we all have, which is the awareness that doesn't cling, but doesn't deny either. Right? That's intimate but not overwhelmed. Not negotiating but clear, okay, with life. So the first, the first part of that, and we, this is, the second one is wise intention, so we can align ourselves. And there's the basic principle of trying to understand, of, of wanting to understand, and to have a view that there is the possibility of freedom. And this, this can, whenever we touch this, we, we start to align ourselves with being more present, with a, a, an intelligence and a buoyancy in the heart and the mind that comes through which, we're, which we start to unpack and grow in our meditation practice. Okay? But it, start, it starts with an intention. It starts with a movement of the mind and the heart. And that's, on one level, it's a, there's a clear ethical component, which we'll see as we go through these, which is harmony. What? Harmony? Why do you need harmony? Well, if we don't have harmony... What is all this based on? A clear heart and mind, isn't it? Seeing things as they are, not reacting. Having a place of, from reaction to the possibility of authentic, spontaneous responsiveness to situations. And we all know these, don't we know these in our own lives when we don't react, when we're really fresh in the moment, aligned with being present? That sometimes really creative things come out of that, different Different responses come out of that. How many people have had that experience? 
Almost everybody, of course. Because we're not, we're not caught up thinking. We're not caught up in imposing on experience. We're fresh. And there's, there's a quality of actual confidence in being present. And then we start to, we meet life more from that, more from that place. So there's a possibility. We align ourselves with this possibility, this, this view that we can understand and, and free our hearts and our minds from this level of suffering through understanding. And this, the ethical component is that we need to, to, we need to understand that we have to understand our minds and hearts. We have to be able to see clearly, get calm and see clearly. And if we don't to do this, so that's the, the third part of the Eightfold Path. It's the meditative part, which is why we come to centers like this, to meditate, right? But we need to actually create less turmoil in our lives to, be, to create the conditions where this is more likely to happen. It's pretty simple. When we're on edge, then we're more in fight-or-flight response. It's much, it's, much, it's much harder to settle, isn't it? So I remember I was, I was a monk in Thailand, and we had someone came into the monastery, and they, were, they couldn't meditate. They were like, oh. Uh. I found out later that they were running from the law. Right? I didn't know monasteries were places where people went to hide out, hit out. <laughs> like the caves, you know. And then, <laughs> no. Let's go to the monastery and hide out, shave my head, get on the robes. No one will recognize me. I don't know. <laughs> so that's, but that was an, no, it was actually a real feeling like, wait, this person can't settle down. There must be something that's a real deep sense of turmoil, right? And often we come to, we come to practice because we have turmoil, because we have suffering. But the point, the, the piece of what, how are we in the best as we can creating the conditions for harmony? When there's more harmony, isn't it easier to relax and to settle? If you've taken care of our worldly situation, say we have enough money, we have a good place to sleep, we have good food, we've created some good relationships, right? Then it's easier just to relax a little bit, isn't it? Would you say? We're not as stressed out. It's pretty simple. So this ethical component, and then we actually share this. So the ethical component is learning to to not act in ways out of our reactive suffering, but there's a value of present moment awareness and respect for life which translates into kindness. Okay, so that's part of the view. It's, it's part of the, and you explore how this works together. So there's an ethical neutrality in being present, but there's actually also an ethical respect for life, interdependence, fullness, okay? And that's, that's part of right view. And then the intention, we align ourselves, understanding, sometimes it's called love and understanding, or kindness and understanding, compassion and wisdom. So we align ourselves with that movement of heart. And it can be mental with thoughts. So thoughts aren't always bad. <laughs> They're not. So they can be, you can create positive conditioning, which both has its own results and also can lead to what's the creation, the, the conditions where we have no conditioning or we're just seeing clearly. Okay. And that's the last part of the path, which is learning to work directly with our minds and hearts. How do we do that? What are the components of a good meditation practice you have to watch, you have to work with in formal practice and in daily lives? We have to have wise effort, don't we? Yeah? It's, it's really practical. If you're driving like this and you're forcing, that's just too much effort often, right? Or you're trying to force something in a conversation and it's just one way and they're trying to do it. If that's a wheel out of kilter, <laughs> Right? So it's learning to, re- but we need enough energy. When we're meditating, we're fantasizing, we need enough energy to come back to the breath. Or if we have, if we have enough um, 
kind of buoyancy and interest in our hearts, then we can see more into that directly, right? But we need that energy. So, so the first part, it's interesting on the meditative path formally and in daily life is effort. And then what's the one, there's one of these factors you can't have too much of. What's that? Mindfulness, <laughs> which is clear present moment awareness. Yeah, very simply. We train it often on specific objects like the breath, the body, the senses, etc., And then it grows so that it, it can fill out and this is very important. It fills out our entire interaction with life inside and outside. So we practice mindfulness. And mindfulness is this present moment awareness that doesn't push and pull. That's its function. It just, yeah. How many people practice mindfulness here? Intend to. It's pretty good, isn't it? In terms of what? In terms of aligning ourselves with a simple direct connection. And then that can grow. The more we do it, the more a continuity builds of awareness. Right? Three or four breaths, a few steps, a quality of being in flow in a, in a conversation or silence with somebody, and then the next thing. Right? So there's a continuity that can grow when we are mindfully and that attention is sustained. And that becomes the third of the meditative piece of this, which is, you can call it steadiness of attention, you can call it concentration, but it's not, it can be on one object, but it actually isn't, it's, it's, a, it's a steady quality of heart and mind. Yeah, focus. A lot of us have it in work sometimes when we get absorbed or sports. There's that quality of really steadiness that stays for a while. So when these three come together, and sometimes it's, it's a process where we, we touch, we, t- we, we touch objects, we feel them, and then there's a continuity of that, okay? And this is, this is a quote from Ajahn Sumedho because this is very important for the wisdom piece. When this is ripe, these three come together, what, what we find is that it's not a, a, it's called samadhi or concentration. It's not a concentration that blocks you off. It's a full, and Ajahn Sumedho is one of the, kind of foremost Western uh, students of Ajahn Chah, who was a great Thai forest master. Um, And he's in his his mid-80s now. He's he's really helped to bring those teachings to the West. It's not a concentration that blocks you off. It's a full concentration of openness. It's not a concentration on something. It's a concentration that is open and receptive. So now we'll go back. So when that happens, what happens to how we're seeing? When these factors are aligned, when we're present, aware, what happens? There's clarity in the mind and the heart, and it has different functions. One function is it's, it's mirror-like. It sees things as they are, right? It's clear. So when what happens? When an emotion arises, it lets it be. We're not trying to deny any of the qualities of being human. It lets it be. And it can be there as long as the energy needs to be there. And then what happens? It passes. It more something else arises. Maybe through, through watching the arising and passing of experience from the clear mind, we see this over and over again, then we start to get less sticky in relationship to those pieces that, right? This constriction that happens in suffering, optional suffering. We start to, it's like water gets thawed out by the quality, another quality sometimes is warmth, right? It's just that the 
it's not just mind as in mind. It's mind and heart. The word chitta means both. So there's this full quality of awareness. And it changes our relationship so we can see into change. We can let things flow more. We can align ourselves more on that level. And we can see into, it, it, enlivens, our, it enlivens our ability to actually, oh, this is suffering. It's just as it is. Wow. There's no reactive suffering. So what happens? We see into the nature of it. And actually seeing suffering can be a gateway into freedom. Because we're not clinging. So it's not, there's no second arrow. It's life as it is. We see things change. And we see over time, and this is the wisdom, these are the deep wisdom pieces entering into freedom, is that we start to see that a lot of our thoughts and emotions and our, our habitual energy is caught up in creating a sense of separation, which fuels me versus them, right? Fuels all this reactivity. So what happens when that empties? When the heart and the mind empties and there's just life, awareness meeting life, the dance of life, what happens? So this is, so one way of looking at the teachings is just suffering. The Buddha taught, said I teach one thing. It's two things, but it's one thing. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. There's this radical possibility, and we often think it's a permanent state. And I, I think in practice we realize more and more that we habituate ourselves to being in the third noble truth, and not necessarily in some philosophical way, that, but just that, that there's freedom. There's non-reactive, clear awareness that's functioning. It's both a practice and it's a realization. So we see things change and we also see into the nature, and it's called Buddha nature or the nature of mind, of heart, that fundamentally is open, expansive, and lets things be, and then moves responsively. So that's the four, those are the four noble truths, and they work together. So uh, let me just give a couple of examples and then we'll open it up. Um, so the same, this, uh, this is, I'll try to make it personal. So um, this, this, this woman that, I, that, that, I, that I'm seeing, she, we went to skiing and she sent me a picture today. She said, that's a cute picture of you or something. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, my first response was, it's horrible. I was back on a couch, I was happy, but I was like this and like I, like I was like, oh my God, I have like six chins. And my face is fat and something poked me in the eye on the ski trail and it's all swollen. And so immediately when I saw it, what did I see? I saw the flaws of me versus an idealization of buff, healthy, Matt, right? Yeah, this is how I am. What? <laughs> so but then I looked at it. I was like, why'd she send this to me? Is she cruel? <laughs> And I, but I looked at it more, and I realized, my gosh, I was really happy. There was some spirit that was captured in it. And I wasn't missing it because I was seeing it through the lens of my conditioning, which lent to this comparative mind. And then when I looked more deeply, I watched that come and go. And I could see, hey, maybe he's not the greatest looking guy, but he's, he's okay. But he's, he's happy. There's a radiance in his being, and that's why she sent it. So... Often we have to, when we're clear and present, we start to see a fuller picture. And this is why understanding that there's freedom and happiness that's available in the present, and that's, that's the core. The Buddha is saying it's available here and now. 
It's not something you have to wait for. The Four Noble Truths are playing out all the time. So this, this uh, a very wise being that I'm friends with, um, I, saw it, I saw it recently, and he had some health issues, so he was much older, and he's lying down. I had to leave seeing him, and I said, oh, I want to I wanna talk more about the Four Noble Truths. And he said, you're looking at him. And I thought, am I looking at suffering because you're tired and feel a little dizzy? Or what, am, what, what does that mean? And then I thought about it. I thought about on my way over here. I'm on my way over here, and I was like, wait. The Buddha said that the entire, the entire universe in the way of our subjective experience of suffering, it ca- understands cause, the end, and the path. They're all within each individual, body, mind. The Four Noble Truths are right in here. And we have the power to discover and to realize the freedom of, of the third noble truth and to deal more skillfully with ex- more ex- deeper acceptance and working, aligning ourselves with human suffering that's not avoidable. Like the Buddha said, when he, when he was dying, he ate some bad meat. People were weeping around him, and he, or the monk said, are you in pain? And he said, yes. He said, my body is in pain but my heart and my mind are still free. You can say this is cold, but it's actually not. It's saying I've touched the, third, the, third, the possibility of deep inner freedom, and that is informing how I'm relating to human suffering. I can be free even though I'm in pain. Try that one out. Because we're not identified, right? Because we're at home in the intelligence that is an open heart and mind. That is that recognition. And it's very, also very important to understand that we can start from this place too. We can recognize that there's happiness, that there's moments. And then we can work, so you can work from the third to the fourth noble truth too. And then you say, oh, what are the causing conditions? Oh, okay. Try to work with, with intentions of harmony and work with the quality of your moment-by-moment awareness, right? Steadiness, see clearly. So we have that, it's an invitation to that. It's an inner kind of, it's an inner empowerment that comes from the freshness of the human condition. That inner, we all have it, don't we? And then we don't want to, de- we can't deny the first and second because that's part of the equation too. So we see how they influence each other and then we just come into this moment again and again. And I'll end with this quote um, which and I'll have to break it down a little bit because it's uh, it might seem a little bit uh oh where's my okay Let's see if I can read it here so this was this is directly looking at um, the reactive suffering okay pushing pulling and not seeing clearly The Buddha said, discern that uh, want, and and I'm bringing together two teachings here, but discern that wanting, unwise greed is present in you, or greed is present in you. And also know when greed is not present in you. So know when there's, or Thich Nhat Hanh, the wonderful Vietnamese teacher said, know when there's a (laughs) non-toothache. No, really, recognize recognize when you're actually, this is very important. I found this a very important teaching. Recognize in the morning when you wake up and you notice that you're fresh and the sun is shining. Recognize that moment. 
That's a little moment of freedom, right? Recognize when your tooth's not hurting, not just when it is, because our mind can move from thing to thing that we land on. So this is saying land on the place that holds it, right? So, but this is that it's simple. It's mindfulness. It's, it's clear seeing in the moment. When greed is present or is not present within you, you discern that greed is present or not present within you. This is the way in which Dhamma, which is the teachings of freedom, are visible in the here and now. So this is the important part. Here and now, timeless, inviting, pertinent, to be realized by the wise for themselves. And it's the same refrain for the other emotions. Okay? When there's aversion, when there's pushing away, discern it as it is. See it as it is. This, it's discernible here and now. Know when it's there. Know when you're not filled with it. Know when there's peace. Yeah? But just the, the radicalness is it's our life right here and now. And so this, finally, this is the strategy. We're living and learning. The Four Noble Truths are not this, it can be a progression, I need to work out, right? Four, no, four. You can also see it very deeply as aligning ourselves with freedom and with clear seeing and the factors that support this, very simply. Quality of our attention, our willingness to come back, our willingness to see our conditioned mind as best we can, to work as skillfully as we can. And that this brings with it a joy and a, res- and a resilience and a buoyancy so that the ultimate teaching of the Four Noble Truths is that what is bad news turns out to be good news if you can investigate it. Yeah? And that's what we're turning towards our life. Okay? Okay, so I'm going to ring. Let's have a moment's pause. Uh, I'll ring the bell. And then so people have their hands up. We have time for Q&A. So let's just sit for a moment, please. May the fruits of our practice, our willingness to be fresh, be clear, to enter into an investigation of the power, working with suffering, its causes, its end, in the path, in the vibrancy of this moment. May the fruits of our practice truly be a benefit to the quality of our own life, of those in our lives, and in the interdependent web of life that we all inhabit to all beings everywhere. May we and all beings be safe, be happy, and be Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.